Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hello and welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast, the podcast that combines politics and comedy to create a politity, which isn't a thing. This is episode 84, I'm Tiernan Duyeb, and this week, like Secretary of State and depressed salad potato Damien Green, I too watch porn while doing work. Ha! I'm joking, of course. I'm definitely not looking at porn while doing this week's podcast. Or am I? No, I'm definitely not. Or am I, though? No, I'm really, really not. But am I, though? Ladies and gentlemen, the magic of audio, you will never, ever know. But I'm I'm definitely, I'm definitely not, though. That would be weird. I wouldn't do that to you. Or am I, though? Okay, I will stop it now. Or will I? Now, it's regularly said that Parliament is full of wankers, but this past week, that has been taken to a new low as Conservatives huddled around Damien Green, although hopefully not too closely, after a now-retired police officer said in an interview that he did find pornography on Green's work computer back in 2008. Green has of course denied these allegations which are being investigated internally, which really just sounds like yet more innuendo but isn't. But this hasn't stopped MPs such as uh, MP for Mid-Bedfordshire and one of the few people in the world who really does make me wonder if freedom of speech is a good idea after all, Nadine Doris. Doris said that she would like to see Green's computer, the search history and all the evidence, yeah I bet she would, before he falls on his sword, which again, I mean really this is too easy isn't it? Doris then took to Twitter to say that her staff, including interns log into her computer every day and that she often has to ask her entire office what her password is, even though I'm pretty sure it's just password and MP for Grantham and Stanford and what happens when a mouse is magically transformed into a human, Nick Bowles said he did exactly the same even though I'm pretty sure his password is also password, but with 1234 at the end. So now there's even more questions about parliamentary data security than there were before, who on earth can access MPs' computers uh, when they like, and is this why they're constantly tweeting such stupid stuff, or is there just absolutely no excuse for that except for their own idiocy? More importantly, if it wasn't Green who accessed all that porn and someone else did, then they really need to get a grip on data security. 
Brexit Secretary and man whose computer password is definitely his own name, but he still somehow forgets it, David Davis, said that he would resign if Damien Green was fired, proving that yes, he really, really just wants to leave his job and will do anything to make that happen. I'm betting that he often hangs around Green's office now, hoping some intern will shout the password to his computer so Davis can log in, load up Pornhub and leg it with all his fingers crossed. Davis was called up in front of the Commons after the Brexit impact reports submitted to the Brexit committee had large bits of information redacted because releasing them could somehow hinder the government's negotiations. But after the committee demanded the information be given, it appeared the reason it could hinder the negotiations is because Europe would once again see that no one has a fucking clue what they're doing and that our general tactic for Brexit is to run around like headless chickens hoping eventually we'll just die of blood loss and be left alone. The Department for Exiting the European Union said that they couldn't submit the analysis the committee asked for in time because it doesn't exist, and considering civil servants have everyone's passwords, you'd think that they'd have found them if they did. Yes, the reports that originally David Davis said didn't exist, then said obviously did but the Prime Minister hadn't bothered to read them, now says that they don't exist all over again, even though some of the non-existing bits have somehow been redacted. So, do they exist? Have they ever existed? Have the Brexit impact reports just been in our hearts this whole time? Or maybe, just maybe, they're the friends that we made along the way. But it's okay because just when you think the UK is the greatest shit show on earth, America asks us to hold their weak, weak, hang on, isn't this just piss water, beer. US president and man whose computer password is whatever it writes when you bang tiny ham fists on a keyboard because shouting at it hasn't worked, Donald Trump, retweeted failed GCSE project and convicted far-right extremist group Britain First on his personal Twitter account. No, a white supremist endorsing a white supremist isn't remotely surprising, as is little Trump does now. I mean, it'd take him tweeting something like, having spent time staring at Monet's water lilies, I understand the fragility and beauty of both art and the nature we're surrounded by, for us all to be like, whoa, that was unexpected. The Britain First tweets were Islamophobic, surprise, and insinuated that a video was an Islamic extremist pushing a Dutch teenager off a building and killing them, when that was not true, surprise, and it was in fact just a Dutch person killing a Dutch person, which is less of a global threat but still a very disturbing video and probably an upcoming European crime noir. The White House defended the retweets by saying that whether or not the content was what it said they were, it was right for Trump to tweet it, as it's all about border security. Sorry, which borders are those? The ones between the Netherlands and the Netherlands? Prime Minister and woman whose computer password is strong and stable, but with various letters missing, Theresa May, for the first time ever condemned Trump's actions, saying that he was wrong to repost those tweets, which prompted Trump to attack her on Twitter, saying she shouldn't focus on him, but instead on the radical Islamic terrorism that is happening in the UK, something that he seems to think is rampant here, but sadly not rampant enough to put him off visiting in February in 2018. And attacking May will surely backfire when Trump arrives and realises there's no one to hold his tiny hand as he walks downstairs, leaving him stranded on the landing for weeks. Several members of the government have said they still think a visit to the UK should happen as Britain and America have a special relationship. Yes, you know, special in the way that it's definitely not a friendship, but it's somewhere between hostage and carer. Britain first have gained popularity since the publicity from Trump, so with any luck they'll fuck off to America ASAP and then be immigrants there and have to spend their days hating themselves. Meanwhile, Trump's former security advisor and man whose password is Pearl, General Michael Flynn has admitted to lying to the FBI during the Mueller inquiry into the Russian meddling in the 2016 election. 
Flynn admitted to a count of false, fictitious and fraudulent statements, which, to be fair, is probably what any member of Trump's team has to have on their CV in order to qualify for the job. Trump then tweeted on Saturday that he'd had to fire Flynn because he lied to the FBI, meaning that either Trump was lying about why he fired Flynn, or he knew that he lied in the first place and was implicit in covering it up. You know, like an evil villain giving away their plans before, and we all continue to keep hoping it is, their final stand. Trump has since blamed that tweet on his lawyer because it seems absolutely no one in power keeps their passwords to themselves anymore, but it also means either, again, he's lying or he has the absolute worst lawyers possible. Either way, while that wall Trump keeps promising doesn't seem to be coming along very quickly, he's making an awful lot of headway with that massive hole he's digging. While Theresa May being insulted by Donald Trump almost makes you side with her until you wish there was a way they could both lose, May's credibility in the UK continued to get more battered last week than a Mars bar in the context of a stereotypical Scottish joke. The entire government commissioned Social Mobility Board resigned on Saturday night, blaming a lack of progress towards a fairer Britain. Come on now, with the current government it's very much like a fair, what with the rigged games that cost a lot but can't be won, rides with endless spin that make you feel sick, and a ton of clowns. Oh, wait, sorry, I see what they mean now. Conservative MP and man whose computer password is a quill dipped in ink, Jacob Rees-Mogg, met with former Trump advisor and man whose computer password is blank as that's the most white it can be, Steve Bannon, to discuss helping conservative movements win in the UK. It's not known if the Vulture, Green Goblin, Electro or any other members of the Sinister Six were also present. Banner also reportedly met with Anal Fisher in a suit and man whose computer password is the word English with no numbers as he can't cope with too many languages or anything that looks like facts, Nigel Farage who, on The Mars Show on Sunday, defended Trump's retweeting of Britain first before claiming no one has done more to stop the rise of the far right in the UK than him. A very laughable claim, unless you consider that if people see someone as loathsome as Farage as being part of a movement, then it's very likely to put them off joining. And lastly, Labour leader and man whose password is about four paragraphs worth of characters, but he insists his computer shouldn't work for a few, Jeremy Corbyn, has responded to Morgan Stanley saying he's a threat by, well agreeing with them. Not sure what a threat to Morgan Stanley is, considering that they do well when the economy doesn't crash, but even better when it does. Maybe they're worried that Corbyn will challenge their system, but not quite do enough to win, resulting in them rapidly destroying themselves instead. Ah, greetings, Parpol Brothers. Are you all feeling Christmassy yet? I mean, I am, but by that, what I mean is all I want to do is eat, get drunk, watch TV and not go outside. I mean, whoever came up with the idea of it's the season of giving nonsense has clearly never tried to buy a present for my dad. Anyway, while all those idiots proclaim, oh, you can't say Christmas anymore or whatever it is that they say based on no evidence at all, I do wish we could rebrand the whole month and just be a bit more it's the season for sitting on your arse a lot and drinking endlessly, which is fine because it's festive and Parliament's on recess, so why don't you just all stop panicking for a bit? Admittedly, that is nowhere near as catchy. Anyway, thank you all for listening, uh, despite the cold weather making headphone and woolly hat combinations much harder than they should be. And thank you to the people that reviewed this show on iTunes last week, including whoever gave the show a one-star review, because um, while you might see that as a bad thing, I'll be honest, the idea that someone sat through a whole hour plus of this and hated all of it, um, that really makes me laugh. Um, This show is now on 90 reviews on iTunes, so please, as it is the season for giving... 
um, if just 10 of you, 10 more of you could give nice reviews, then this will hit the big three digits on there and then I can pretend to my family that I do a proper job when I see them on the holidays. Um, similarly, if you can afford to donate, then please, please do uh, to the patreon.com uh, forward slash parpolbro or a one-off buy me a coffee thingy at ko-fi.com uh, forward slash parpolbro. Um, all of that is hugely, hugely useful. Um, obviously, if you can't afford it, don't worry. Um, and I know I say this all of the time, but I'm planning on doing some sort of extras for Patreon subscribers over the holidays, as well as some sort of extras for all of you, um, as next week is going to be the last show of the year. And I'm aware that that means there'll be at least a few weeks of Brexit negotiations that I won't be able to explain badly to you. And I don't want you spending Christmas Day burning your potatoes out of worry as to how you'll understand things if I haven't described David Davis as John Inman's evil twin first. Um, whew, right, before we crack on with this show, which uh, is going to be slightly rushed and probably a bit garbly, I apologise. I am recording this after seeing um, The Gorillas uh, tonight. That is the musical ones, not the ape or warfare ones, even though either of those would be amazing, um, especially if they did music. I mean, there was that one gorilla that played the drums on that Cadbury's advert and was pretty great. I reckon they do well at the O2. Anyway, um, yeah, it's really late. I'm recording this. It's five to one in the morning uh, after seeing a pretty amazing gig with a guest list that was better than most benefits um so uh apologies if this sounds like uh i feel like i should do it all like a late night radio call in so if you've got any problems that you want to let me know about just drop me a line on partly political broadcast at gmail.com and i'll tell you absolutely awful advice um anyway sorry before episode things firstly um this week's interview is not very good sound quality wise I know that is a total flashback to the early days of this show, um, but in terms of flashback, it's kind of more, wow, shell suits were flammable, weren't they? Rather than a, hey, wasn't the theme tuned to Street Hawk really awesome? Um, I'm sorry about that. I spent an irritating amount of time trying to make it better, but it is still not great. So just a heads up, if you're listening to this week's show while travelling, you might want to save those bits for later when you're somewhere quieter, like, say, a library or the recesses of your darkened mind. Um, second thing, I've realised that I've also been crap at mentioning things about parties other than the Conservatives lately on this show. Um, while this is obviously a partisan show because I love Italian hard cheese, um, I do think it's pretty important to mock all parties when needed, as I've often banged on about on this show. Um, but as you've probably noticed, the government are being so ridiculous lately that I've decided to give stories about Labour, SNP, Lib Dems and others uh, a backseat in a driverless car as a result. Um, is that annoying? Shall I try and dedicate a section to everyone else uh, each week on this show? Um, and if yes, how long should this podcast be? Several days? Years? Um, as always, I am interested in all of your thoughts, even ones about what you want for dinner or what I should buy my dad for Christmas. Or, in fact, why some families decide to walk side by side on the pavement so that no one can get past them in a move that I now call fam spreading. Um, anyway, please do let me know on all the usual messaging methods that I'll say about 400 times on this show. Um, so, this week, episode 84, I am chatting to, with not great sound quality, Christian Walmart, all about the railways and driverless cars and other transport things. Um, also, I'm going to be looking at the last week of Trump, although sadly not his last week, just the last week in terms of time, because he seems to survive everything. I mean, I do wonder if his reign is going to be like War of the Worlds, where we find out all the shit he's done, but somehow he still can't be impeached and then suddenly dies of a common cold. Fingers crossed. Um, speaking of which, there was a news story last week with the headline, White House maintenance requests show building infested with cockroaches and vermin. I don't even know why I bother. <sighs> anyway, but before all of that, here's this. 
On Saturday night, the entire board of the Social Mobility Commission resigned. I mean, how socially mobile is that? They all walked out together. The SMC, as no one calls it, uh, was led by ex-Labour Minister Alan Milburn and was given the position by the Coalition Government. Do you remember them? The double act that got on less well than Greg Wallace and um, anyone who's ever had to work with Greg Wallace. The job of the Commission was as an advisory non-departmental public body that monitored progress to improving and promoting social mobility in the UK, aka the idea that effort and talent should count more than the circumstances of your birth. The Commission said they resigned because of a lack of progress, and that is quite a blow to the Conservative government whose slogan is building a country that works for everyone. Then again, they've barely constructed any homes, so expecting them to speedily build anything at all other than that is a very tall order. Now, Milburn is an ex-Labour minister, so many have said that his resignation is a way of political point scoring, but he said that that is not at all to do with it. I mean, to be fair, working for the government since 2012 just to point score is really playing a very, very long game. Milburn says he's worked for Labour, Conservative and Coalition governments and been professional and non-partisan, but he's resigned now because Brexit is so all-consuming for the government that they're ignoring other key areas such as social equality as a result. The government have, of course, tried to pass this off as the board's contract being up and they've said that they've already decided to get some fresh blood in, which is a terrifying statement from a group of people that have so many ministers who look like vampires. There's a lot of areas where this past seven years of government have hindered social mobility, especially in the education system where right from early years the government provided free nursery care but didn't give enough funding for it to work out, all the way to funding cuts for adult learning. But just to hammer this home for May, this resignation of the Social Mobility Commission has come just as research from the Joseph Rowntree Foundation has released figures saying 700,000 more children and pensioners have in the last four years fallen into relative poverty. No, that doesn't mean they have a really poor selection of family members with a dad that's impossible to buy gifts for. Everyone suffers from that, right? But instead, it means they are from households that get less than 60% of the median income. That is the first time it's risen in 20 years and largely due to stagnant wages, benefit freezes, crappy universal credit fuck-ups, uncertain jobs and a rise in the cost of living. Now, the government have pointed out that since 2010, the number of people in absolute poverty, which is income and access to services, has fallen by more than 500,000. So what they're saying is, hooray, people aren't completely fucked, they're just mostly fucked. Well done, everyone. The government have said they're already planning to appoint a new chair to the commission, but whether or not this will make them more focused on working with a new board is unknown. We'll have to wait and see if they'll be relatively as stubborn to push for greater social mobility as they are now, or absolutely worse. What is more of a British institution than trains? What do you mean excuses for train delays? Okay, maybe that. The railway system in Britain is the oldest in the world, and like most old things in the UK, the government want them to keep working until they die despite a lack of provisions to get them on track. See what I did there? Track? Hmm. Uh, the privatisation of British Railways started under Margaret Thatcher's government, with John Major finishing them off in 1996, like he did with Edwina Curry. Since then, with ever-increasing costs, services like Southern Rail working less as a train service and more of a ticketed series of cold platforms you can stand on for an hour, and the fact that the Labour Party have been mentioning it all again, renationalisation of the rail is a hugely popular notion in the public opinion. Last week, Transport Secretary and Dan Dare's arch-enemy Chris Grayling announced a £47 billion investment in rail and a spit-up of two of the largest rail franchises, including GTR, the group that runs Southern. Rail, I mean, not that they run things southwards, although I guess really that's also relevant given the last few years. But what does this split mean for train travellers, or for the future of British trains? Are the transport departments sending the right signals, or have they gone off the rails? How many train puns can I get away with on my own platform? 
Yes, too many. Well, once again, like every week, this is an area I have absolutely no idea about, despite having been on a train more than once, possibly even twice, and I've occasionally read about trains uh, or seen them in films. But one man who does know a lot about transport politics is Christian Volmar. Christian is a railway historian and writer who's written many articles on the problems of rail privatisation and the transport industry, and has authored several books on rail history, including his most recent one, Railways and the Raj, How the Age of Steam Transformed India. Christian has also run as a Labour Party candidate for selection for the London mayor elections and for election as an MP in Richmond Park in 2016. So I asked Christian all about what this announcement means and about transport politics in general. And we also got talking about driverless cars too, as he's quite opinionated on that as well. Now, before I play this interview, I'm sorry to play... Excuses, excuses! As I mentioned at the top of this show, um, this recording is not great. Uh, despite lowering the volume on my computer, um, the recording from Christian's side peaked quite a lot. Meaning, well, I suppose fittingly, it sounds not unlike Christian was talking to me through a trained tannoy system. Um, what I would say, having listened to it several times trying to fix it, is that you do get used to it after a minute, and there's definitely large chunks that are easier to listen to than others. However, it might be tricky if you're, well, unfittingly, say, on a train. So huge apologies, I found this a really interesting chat and I'd really like you to be able to hear it so I hope you can bear with it and sorry 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 right here's Christian the government announced uh, on Wednesday their plan for uh, greater collaboration between private trailing companies and network rail um, do you think this is a good thing for British transport and what does it what does it actually mean for rail travel uh, well, it was a, it was a good it's a good idea if it was generally an attempt to merge the two major bits of the railway, which is uh, the operations, the, the train operating companies, and network rail. Uh, it's always been daft that privatisation they separated out the two because railways are essentially an integrated business. You can't run the trains without the tracks, and you can't have tracks uh, which are just empty and don't have any trains on them. And uh, these were separated out at uh, privatisation. Now, what the government announced uh, yesterday is just a kind of bit of patchwork, on, particularly on the East Coast mainline. And it's really an excuse for the fact that the train operating company on the East Coast mainline, which is called Virgin, but is actually 90% owned by a stagecoach, was in terrible financial trouble. They were probably going to announce that they were going to leave the franchise. And so the government has come up with this idea, oh, the two better work together. We'll call it a public-private partnership. And possibly the public won't notice the fact that actually Stagecoach was due to pay hundreds of millions of pounds to uh, the government over the course of the franchise. And hey, presto, now that won't happen. So it's not a genuine attempt to to change the structure of the railways. It's just a patch-up for what was, what was heading for disaster. So it's, it's basically it's just a bailout for, so they, they don't have to pay any more money? It's actually it's a bailout so that stagecoach uh, can... Uh, 
sort of retain the franchise under a different deal, which involves some sort of integration with Network Rail, uh, and uh, not pay these hundreds of millions of pounds that they were due to pay over the next seven or eight years. Now, I think the indicator of this is the fact that stagecoach fares went up, uh, sorry, stagecoach shares went up by five or six percent uh, very quickly once this uh, announcement was made, because the shareholders recognised that stagecoach was going to have to pay all this money out and it was going to be bad for uh, their dividends. But is there, I mean, there is something in the plan or the, the initial idea of having tra- private train companies collaborating with network rail. Is that, you know, th- that sort of initial idea sounds like it's moving towards the idea of renationalisation, or is that not the case uh, at all? I mean, uh, Chris Grayling is an ideologue and will never go near renationalising uh, the railways. So, therefore, he's got a problem because he actually knows enough about the rails to understand that they work much better when network rail and train operators are actually one organisation and work together under a single board of management, as happens in Scotland. But because he's such an ideologue, he will not countenance the idea of the private train operators merging with the public sector network rail. So this fudge is a way around it, but I don't think uh, it will actually improve things for passengers, and it does solve the fundamental problem that the two companies operate separately and have uh, arrangements between each other, such as compensation payments, that makes them antagonistic to one another. And, I mean, something that I've I've always... uh, I don't know enough about uh, the privatisation of the railways. I know that nationalising now is quite a popular opinion in the UK and it has been for quite some time. Why has privatisation not worked? And have there been any benefits from it at all? Uh, Well, it hasn't worked because of this fundamental split between the operators and Network Rail, who owns the track and infrastructure. Uh, Essentially, this has created a very complicated structure for the industry with lots of different stakeholders who don't necessarily uh, row in the same direction. And uh, it is that that uh, has hamstrung uh, the efficient running of the railways uh, ever since privatisation. Now, uh, of course, there's been massive improvements in the railways in the last 20 years. There's been quite a lot of investment, which is something that privatisation has brought about, not because the private companies have paid the money, but because the government has made guarantees to those private companies that money will be available for investment. So the government has put in vast amounts of money, uh, and lots of people, extra people, are using the railways. Uh, so there has been uh, quite a purple patch for them despite the difficulties of trying to manage this very complicated structure. Uh, The problem is we've now got to a situation where suddenly passenger numbers are no longer going up. This is the first time in about 15 to 20 years that passenger numbers are no longer growing. That's put immediate financial pressure on the train operators and that's why we've had the bailout that happened yesterday. And is that so? I, I didn't know that about passenger numbers. And is that part of the problem why we're seeing companies like Southern Rail trying to cut costs with driver only trains and things like that? Is they trying to make savings? Is that what that is? Yes. So, I mean, a lot of these 
uh, train operators have signed up to franchise deals. Uh, they often last about seven to uh, uh, ten, ten years. And so they're really guessing what uh, the income is likely to be from uh, passengers quite far ahead. And generally, these have been predicated on the idea that there will be uh, continued growth of two, three, four, five percent annually. And that enables them to pay uh, increased premiums or receive less subsidy. Now that the passenger numbers are, are suddenly not going up, and I think, and so do many people in the industry, thinks that largely that's down to Brexit, not necessarily the direct effects of Brexit, but the general uncertainty that has caused in the economy. Um, and the fact that wage growth uh, has basically uh, been zero for the last uh, five or ten years, and therefore households are looking for savings. So these two factors, Brexit and uh, the stagnation of wages, has at last started to have an impact on the railways. And I think it's it's uh, now come, the chickens have come home to roost and uh, the franchisees, the train operating companies, are in trouble. But I mean, there's still cause there's still quite a lot of investment going into you know like Crossrail is happening in London. They're talking about the Northern Powerhouse now, and they're you know putting more money into the railways. There is this gonna if if not you know if we're losing numbers of rail passengers, surely this is going to have an effect kind of across the board on all of that as well. Well, the investment plans are rather separate from kind of short-term passenger numbers. So the investment plans are set by uh, the government who allocate uh, a chunk of money, basically five years uh, in five years chunks. And interestingly, uh, a couple of months ago, they announced the next five-year chunk, which starts in 2019. It's rather like uh, uh, Russia uh, in, under communism had kind of five-year plans. It's a bit like that. And uh, the, the uh, government, in fact, has been quite generous and is uh, uh, providing funds that probably will amount to about £48 uh, billion pounds over that five-year period from 2019 to 2024, which is an increase of £10 billion on the previous uh, five-year period. So the investment money is, is there and is going into the industry, but that doesn't help uh, the short-term uh, pressure that the train operating companies are under because they uh, basically get their income from fares uh, and so the investment money is, is not really of any help to them. So it's completely separate. That goes to network rail. Right, I see. Right, okay. I think a lot of I think a lot of people like myself don't understand the separation of the two, and how the money differentiates between the two. I, I, I was going to ask about the, about Southern Rail, which I mentioned earlier. Is the driver only trains? Is that a, a proper issue? Is it an issue to sort of security? Do you think the RMT are right to continue refusing to come to an agreement with them about it? Uh, uh, I think probably the RMT have rather dug themselves into a hole. I mean, for the most part, this is not about uh, no second person being on the train. Uh, and I think that the, on the whole, there will still remain a second person on most trains. Uh, and uh, the, uh, both people in the industry and the government probably wants that. What, what it is, it is to, about the precise status of those people uh, and whether they are safety trained and, and what their exact role is. And uh, I, I think, in a way, the auntie was right to kind of hold out that there needs to be a second person on the train, but probably wrong to hold out on you know, exactly what that second person does and exactly what are the conditions that required when you don't have that second person. Now, the train operating companies will say, for example, if a second person just 
is late for their shift or can't uh, get the, the train, which might have five or 600 people on it, should go anyway, uh, because it's more important to move those five or 600 people than uh, to uh, uh, wait for the second person. It's those sort of nitty-gritty issues that this dispute has got down into. Remember that ASLEF, the train drivers union, has basically agreed to a, a new deal. And so uh, it leaves the RMT with not many levers in their power. Unlike ASLEF, they can't actually stop the train service. They can reduce it, but not actually stop it. Right. So it might continue. This it might continue forward anyway. It, it might continue forward at some strikes, but they will have less and less effect. And why? I mean, it's one of those things where I'm, I'm sort of quite a pro-union person, but why do rail unions have so much power? Is it just because they can stop people getting to work? You know, it can kind of hold up uh, businesses yes. in that sense. Or what's is that? Is that the main reason they're so? Yes, I mean, traditionally, yeah. the strong unions were those that really could, uh, you know, upset uh, production or upset the service uh, straight away. So the print unions, of course, used to be immensely powerful uh, until uh, whopping and the the that uh, they were effectively uh, de-unionized. Uh, the miners had a, a lot of power because you, know, you needed a sub- constant supply of coal. Of course, that doesn't apply anymore. Um, uh, you know, ship uh, dockers uh, had a lot of power because uh, they could uh, stop the, the, the ship's uh, goods from being transferred and therefore uh, they were able to uh, exercise strong power. So it's always those unions where if they withdraw their labour, the service stops and the public is greatly affected. That were powerful. And that is one of the reasons, not the only one, why uh, unions are less strong these days because uh, most of those industries uh, no longer have, have the... Uh, are no longer the, the same importance that they were before. Sure, sure. I mean, but I mean, railways are going to continue to, especially I suppose with you know we're, we're constantly well pretending that we're having a sort of green drive uh, in this country, and um, you know railways are far more environmentally friendly than than cars have been a thing. So, I mean, where do you see the you know the the future of railway travel now going? If it, if it's not going to, we're not going to have renationalisation, but passenger numbers are dropping. Is it going to become better at all? No, there's nothing like a crisis. I mean, just because passenger numbers have dropped slightly over the space of the uh, last six months, last year, uh, does not represent a crisis in the industry. Uh, quite the opposite. Uh, the industry is booming. There's lots of new carriages uh, coming on stream, as well as Crossrail, uh, which is going to partly open uh, at the end of next year, and, and the rest of it will open a year later. There's Thameslink. Uh, there's you know, other bits in the rail networks. This is this new cord in Manchester, which will improve uh, services. Uh, And uh, the railways are uh, carrying passengers that are almost at all-time high, apart from last year, basically. So uh, they are are booming, and they are seen as vital uh, to the nation's infrastructure. I mean, uh, HS2, uh, for example, is is probably going to get built. Uh, um, So there's a great vote of confidence in the railways. It's just they've got some short-term problems here and a longer-term problem over the structure of the industry, which doesn't quite work. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. 
When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. And we'll be back with Christian in a minute, but first... The good thing about America being in a terrifying situation with a maniacal despot in charge is that every time I'm stressed about UK politics, I look over there and go, phew, at least things here aren't that bad. I mean, that's sometimes all you need, right? But this past week has been yet another one in the Chronicles of Trump, aka why you shouldn't pick at scabs, that makes you go, oh wow, he really is unlike anything we've ever seen outside of films about awful things. No, I don't mean awful people, I mean awful things. Like, for example, King Kong. I mean a giant ape destroying America and grabbing women. Sounds familiar. Now, this bit of the podcast is going to be just an update and I don't have time to go into all the details of all of the bazillion things that he happens to do every fucking week. So, just maybe check back to episode 77 with John Aravosis for some of it and I'm going to recommend some UK podcasts too to listen to at the end as well for more detail. But I thought I'd just give you a little overview of all the awful things. But first, let's go to the bit of last week's news about Tangerine Scream's Twitter habits that you probably heard about the most. That's right, the retweeting of Britain First, a group whose name is short for a much longer title that continues in a race to the bottom. There are some very obvious issues about Trump retweeting debunked videos from a far-right extremist group, not least the spreading of divisiveness and hatred towards Muslims, the spreading of misinformation and the further confirmation, if you needed it, that Trump is a big old white supremacist, even if he's mostly orange. Oh, and it also meant that TV everywhere was interviewing far-right commentators who mostly seemed to sound like someone was repeatedly punching a parrot. And it also caused Britain First to gain a ton of members, despite Jada Franson, who Trump retweeted, recently being found guilty of hate crime, religiously aggravated harassment, and is now due to appear in court in Northern Ireland for using threatening and abusive language at an anti-terrorism demonstration earlier this year. Yeah, she sounds really lovely, doesn't she? I mean, that is the sort of rap sheet that could, at best, get you a job as an early end-level boss in an 8-bit beat-em-up. It's the last bit of info that I've just mentioned about Jada Franson being charged in Northern Ireland that is linked to something that's largely been ignored with all of this story. And that is that by Trump retweeting her and Britain first, he's now promoting a group who've been spending time in Northern Ireland trying to push to bring back paramilitary extremism that was a big part of the Troubles. There are a number of links between Britain First's ex-leader and loyalist paramilitary groups, as well as currently with Jada Franson, with an early altercation this July and then this charge she now has for August of this year. 
year. The whole British values ideology of Britain first has been picked up by Northern Irish loyalist groups, and now Trump has retweeted them. There are worries that this is him saying he's taking sides in Northern Ireland's identity politics, a country that currently doesn't have a government and may very soon have a physical border post-Brexit. I mean, what is it with Trump and places that have a divided North and South? Carolina and Dakota should be very afraid, although to be fair, they probably already are. The next ingredient in last week's awful pie was the tax reform bill passed in the Senate at 51 votes to 49 that barely anyone had read at the time of the vote due to amendments and revisions that were still being added by the Republicans as it was being passed. No, no, I mean, I'm sure that's not dodgy at all. I mean, why make it so your political opponents can't see what they're voting for? It must just be to save them time reading, right? What we do know about the bill is that it included a massive corporation tax cut from 35% to just 20%, which really helps, you guessed it, Trump's businesses. It will also undo the Obamacare individual coverage mandate, which required all Americans get healthcare. We also know that the non-partisan Senate Joint Committee on Taxation said this bill would add to the federal deficit over the next decade, despite the White House saying it would cause economic growth. What? The White House giving misinformation? What? And that while most Americans would see tax breaks after 2026, those earning under $75,000 a year would end up seeing much higher taxes. So, I mean... Any plus points? It's basically a trickle-down tax cut, which, as we know, with all trickle-down systems, are only called that because those earning everything at the top insist what's trickling down is gold, when in fact it's definitely piss. Which, to be fair, is exactly the sort of thing Trump is into on all levels. Now, this tax bill hasn't yet become law, as it still needs to pass the House of Representatives to do so, but already several economists are saying that this could be catastrophic, affecting many, many people on lower wages and could possibly cause a recession if it goes through. Also, you have to wonder what a 20% corporation tax will do to corporation tax globally, as it could set the competitive standard. Then that would mean companies like Amazon or Apple could, well, I suppose, act pretty much like they always do, to be fair, and not even pay that. But this whole bill is giving away money to those already have it, and it will be taking away money and services from those who need it. Still, many of those are Trump's core fan base, so I guess it's what they wanted. And lastly, there was the story about General Michael Flynn pleading guilty to lying to the FBI about his conversations with the Russian ambassador during Trump's election campaign. By pleading guilty, Flynn could face a maximum of five years in prison and a $250,000 fine, but it could also mean that he ends up with no time in prison and a fine of only $9,500. Flynn's admission that he met and worked with Russian officials on two separate occasions and in consultation with the Trump team mean that the Mueller investigation have evidence to go after more senior figures above Flynn. But the only real senior figure above Flynn, who was the national security advisor for the Trump campaign, are Vice President Mike Pence or Trump himself. Trump's son-in-law Jared Kushner is also likely to be under fire next as there is evidence of his meetings with Russian officials who claim to have dirt on Hillary Clinton. But, of course, Trump defended himself from all this on Twitter with a comment about how he had to fire Flynn because he'd lied to the FBI. And this was basically a written admission that he had known Flynn lied and that was why he fired him, making Trump implicit in the crime, or at least an obstruction to justice. This tweet also puts into question why Trump fired FBI Director James Comey if he knew about Flynn lying, and though he tweeted on Sunday that it was because of the FBI's reputation in tatters, he has previously said in complete contradiction that it was because Comey was looking into the Russia thing, as he put it. So all of this points to Trump, as I mentioned before, creating an obstruction of justice, which is pretty serious. Trump blamed that tweet, though, which admitted that, on his lawyer, because it's been so easy for anyone to wrangle his phone out of his tiny hands before that, obviously. 
But then his lawyer, John Dowd, admitted that he had told Trump what to say, and uh, he sent his admittance to journalists in Comic Sans, because he's either the worst lawyer anyone's ever hired, or he's fucking sick of Trump as well, and knew that if he told him what to tweet, that might mean he can get a new client very, very soon. Or he's Trump in disguise, or all of the above, which oddly also feels possible. However, John Dowd has said that Trump is unable to obstruct justice being the president, which many are unsure of because he seems pretty able to obstruct everything else, like a massive arse boulder. So, look, um, that's it. That's it for this week's Trumpings in a nutshell. I haven't really gone into much. I haven't really explained what that all means because I don't know. What what does any of it mean, apart from the fact that he continues to be a terrible yet farcical human being? Does any of it mean the apocalypse is coming or perhaps the alternative and he'll finally be banished from the White House? I have no idea. I just know that those are all things that happened in the last five days. And, God, it's already too much. Now, I'll tell you what I do know is that things aren't just unstable in the US. They're as though the horses never had anywhere to live in the first place. So I hope that that little brief interlude has caught you all up to it. Maybe you can go and look at more into it. Um, hope Not Hate have done more about uh, the connections with Britain First to Northern Ireland. Uh, many other places have done stuff on the tax bill um, and on the Flynn trial. Uh, and podcasts I would recommend are Unprecedented, Pod Save the People, Pod Save America, Abe Lincoln's Top Hat and many, many others. And go get your details there because, oh my God, my brain hurts. And now, back to Christian. Another thing that I really wanted to ask you about, because I was I was enjoying reading uh, some of your articles about it, but I understand that you're not particularly uh, a fan of the idea of driverless cars, um, and I know the government now pledged to have them on like fully driverless cars on the roads by 2021. Um, why do you think that's not likely to happen, and why? What have you got problems with? Yeah, I'll take a bet on, uh, on with any of your listeners that they won't be fully autonomous cars driving down the streets on 2021. Uh, by 2021, they might be someone with very restricted tracks, but they won't be driving around Piccadilly Circus uh, or uh, uh, any anywhere significant by then, if at all, uh, without somebody uh, at the wheels able to to, to take over. My scepticism—it's it, it, not as much I'm opposed to the idea, uh, although I do think it has problems because I, I don't. See how it's going to decrease uh, congestion if uh, there's lots of uh, zombie miles, as they're called, uh, by by cars with nobody in them. But I just think that the practical uh, problems facing driverless cars uh, are uh, insuperable in a way. And I, there's just a couple that I've come up with. Though there's quite quite a lot of others. Um, if you stand in front of a driverless car, it has to stop by by definition. It can't uh, kill you. Uh, so then the whole relationship between pedestrians and cars changes so that pedestrians will know that if they just walk out, the cars have to stop. So uh, it will be very difficult to stop uh, people, what is called jaywalking in, in America, but we don't have that concept. You know, we are allowed to cross roads wherever you want. We don't have to wait for the little green man. Uh, that's you know, only a recommendation. So I, I don't see that as being workable. I think that the, the cars will just grind to a halt. Um, but another objection to that also is that there's great safety uh, implications, security and you're going down a dark kind of road in the middle of the night, anybody will be able to stop in front of that car and stop it. 
Uh, now, uh, that could be a vulnerable person in the car. It could be uh, somebody who's got you know, a great big fat wallet with them. Now, when I put this uh, case to uh, an eminent professor, Professor Paul Newman, who is the head of Oxbiotics, which is developing uh, some of these cars and doing some trials in both Oxford and, and Milton Keynes, uh, he said on the radio, oh, that's a ludicrous suggestion. You know, oh, these cars will be fitted with all sorts of monitoring devices. They know who will stop you. I thought that was a pathetic response. I, I think it showed that actually the, these uh, car companies and tech companies that are developing this uh, concept uh, haven't actually thought through the idea. No, no, I didn't. I mean, I didn't know about that, that so anyone can just walk out. I mean, in my head, I sort of see central London completely congested as just people cross out in front of Oxford Street, in front of everything. You know, it's, you'd <laughs> never go anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> I've called it in my book, I've called it uh, uh, my, my book, which is called Driver's Cars on a Road to Nowhere, uh, which is coming out in January. Uh, I've called it the Holborn problem, because if you ever go around Holborn at, at six o'clock in the evening, there's people pouring into the pavement because there's just so many people trying to get into the tube station. And uh, if all the cars were drivers, there'd be total gridlock because nobody would ever bother to, to to uh, allow the cars through, why would you? Particularly, as I say, if they're empty. I mean, why would you let an empty car go past you rather than you? You know, we, we just so oh, there's nothing in that car. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not going to uh, let it go past. Why should I? And uh, you know, the, the the test that we see of these drivers' cars with, you know, going round uh, suburban American streets at kind of 15 miles an hour and behaving absolutely perfectly and rationally, uh, it doesn't mean doesn't mean that you know in a year or two, they'll be able to whiz round uh, the North Circular or through Piccadilly Circus or round Hyde Park Corner. I mean, it's just unfathomable. They're, they're, these cars need very clear road markings, for example, and, and nobody has actually tested them in the snow. There's not a lot of snow in California. <laughs> um, nobody has tested them in very heavy rain because apparently their sensors don't work very well in very heavy rain. There's all these things before uh, you know they'll be carrying around the blind people, as uh, the, the uh, boss of Waymo, which is the Google subsidiary, actually suggested to Congress. You know, he, he suggested Chris Armson. He, he suggested, oh, uh, be, you know, I, I've spoken to these blind people and, and they're absolutely delighted these cars are going to happen because, uh, you know, it enables them to have mobility again and they'll just be able to get in these cars and, and be driven to their destinations. I can't see that happening. Less uh, uh, in my lifetime. I'm not sure I can see it ha happening uh, ever. Really, I, I just think that there's too many issues around that. Absolutely. I mean, I just as you mentioned with the weather of all the countries that you you need something to be tested for the weather in. I mean, <laughs> it's you know our trains don't work if there are a few leaves on the tracks. So I feel that this is a. A disaster waiting to happen. Um, I, I wanted to ask. I, so I don't know how the how would money work with driverless cars as well. You know, would it be only people that could afford to use them, or would they be open to the public? Because it feels to me that a lot of transport is becoming increasingly only available to people that can afford it. And would that well, be the same? Well, there's an old issue here, and, and I've addressed this in, in, in my book, which, which is that the, the people promoting driverless cars are uh, arguing that there's going to be drivers 
shared pods, electric, that uh, we will all be using rather than owning our own car. So they're positing not not one revolution, not two revolutions, but three. So the first one is the electric revolution, which is to some extent happening, but there are great issues about whether there's enough battery capacity and whether you can charge up uh, big lorries and, and, and buses and the like and, and whatever. But we will be driving more electric cars, but exactly how many is, is, is unclear uh, uh, over, over time. The second issue is the shared use concept. Now, I don't understand why they've mixed up this shared use concept with the driver's car concept, because... You know, we have no appetite to, to uh, have shared use cars. Yes, of course, in uh, uh, central London, there's a lot of people who don't own a car and, and use Zipcar or whatever, or Uber, um, and uh, that's fine. But if you live two miles outside Woking in some smart kind of house down a country lane, you're not going to want to be reliant on calling up uh, uh, Uber every time you, you or as driverless Uber every time you want to go. Anywhere. You're going to want your own car. So I don't know why they muddle this issue about uh, uh, driverlessness uh, and shared use and electric. And the third issue, of course, is that a driverless car has to be totally driverless. Right, it, it's no good being ninety-nine percent drivers. It has to be a hundred percent driverless. So uh, because otherwise, you need to be aware. Of what it's doing and be able to take over at some point. So the advantage of being driverless aren't just aren't there. So uh, they, they, they put forward this triple revolution and painted a model uh, which you've hinted at, at kind of uh, oh, we're going to have driverless pods that we whistle up and they'll come to our door and they'll take us uh, to our office and then go away because uh, they'll, they'll go to their next use. And there's no evidence that any of these three revolutions is actually feasible is going to happen. No, and, and and that will leave people who drive for a living out of work as well, won't it? That's a, that's, a, that's an issue they've absolutely not considered. And and uh, but my view is that, that that people who do driving for a living shouldn't worry because I I, I just don't see this as practical. And certainly, uh, you know, unless we had a, a complete change in the way that we deal with uh, roads and traffic, we would have to mandate that uh, people would be forced to drive in these driverless cars and would, would not be allowed to own their own cars. Well, tell that to the people who spend, you know, £100,000 on building a, buying a Lamborghini or, uh, 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 you know, other kind of uh, top-of-the-range cars, you know, Rolls-Royces or the like. Uh, you know, they like their cars. They're not going to want to, to go in some driverless pod, let alone the Queen. I can tell you the Queen's not going to go in a driverless pod. <laughs> I can see, I can see problems of somebody just walking out in front of her convoy, and then she's she doesn't make the grand opening of something. That's why she's not going to do it. Well, um, I've got uh, just a couple more questions. I, I wanted to ask you about your most recent book, uh, which is uh, Railways and the Raj, which is about the British construction of railways in India. Can you just tell me uh, a little bit more about it? Because it's an absolutely fascinating subject. And I think um, especially with uh, people sort of uh, the anniversary of the partition this year, I don't think people know enough about the uh, British involvement uh, in the railways in India. I think we know it was British, but not much more than that. Okay. Uh, um, the, the, the book is a story of how the railways were built um, by the British when uh, India was a colony, started in 1853. Um, uh, but the, the real story 
is the fact that although we claim to have kind of built the railways for India, for the benefit of India, of course, we built them for our own benefit um, uh, for, for two main reasons. And one, one to uh, help with import-export, so both exporting raw materials to ports and then importing uh, stuff back, manufactured goods back that we, we had uh, made in the UK. And the second was, was military. They were built uh, because it was a lot cheaper having... Uh, railways than putting uh, big barracks at, in every big uh, city uh, in case of uh, insurrection. And indeed, it was a mutiny, or what's called the rebellion in India, of 1857 that stimulated a, a rapid increase in the, the rate of growth of, of the railways. And what, what I suppose the saddest aspect of this story is that you know, we treated the Indians so badly all the way through, both in, in terms of passengers, they were treated appallingly in, in their uh, third-class trains, even though actually they cont contributed the bulk of passenger income. But also as workers, they were treated badly. They, they were not allowed to be promoted. For example, they, they, they could be a fireman on a steam engine, but not a driver because that was considered to be a European job. They could be a, a station master in some tiny village station, but not in some major station because they were not to be trusted with that sort of job. Um, and, and really that continued all the way through um, uh, the colonial period. Um, and so it was never seen as a partnership. It was always a, 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 a rather repressive regime. And uh, so, I, so I portray this throughout the book. And, and it, I expected to find that in research in the book. I kind of expected to find a sort of more positive role for, for the British. But I unfortunately, it was the one. And crucially, I mean, I suppose that most bizarre aspect is that we say that we built the railways uh, for, for the Indians because we built it with British capital and, and uh, we did with British investment but in fact it was the Indians who had to guarantee a 5% rate of return on that capital. So uh, if there weren't enough passenger numbers, the shareholders got their uh, got their 5% anyway um, because uh, that was a guarantee set out by the British. But it was the uh, Indian government who taxed very poor people, basically peasants and, and uh, for their agricultural produce, who had to pay for the, to service these, uh, uh, these investments. Uh, and, and so, you know, it really is a story of exploitation from beginning to end. And then, of course, in 18, 1947, when the Indians take over the railways, far from not being able to run them, uh, they expanded the railways uh, very quickly, built lots of new lines uh, and run them to this day. You know, pretty efficiently, although, of course, they're a crazy system because they're, they're so uh, heavily used in some parts. But, mm. you know, it is a pretty efficient system. Well, it's just you sort of discussing the how the shareholders benefited when the, the people didn't. I sort of feel like there's lessons to be learned about the British railway system now from so all of that. It's like in this conversation, indeed. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, thank you so much for your time. I, very, very last question, which is something that I ask every single guest, um, is apart from yourself and all your writing, and I'd recommend listeners check out uh, your books, Railways in the Raj, and you said your driver's cars book is out in January. Um, other than that, is there anyone that you enjoy or look to or follow online for views uh, or coverage on politics of transport that you could recommend to myself and the listeners? Um... Well, I suppose my friend Roger Ford, who, who writes for a rival magazine called Modern Railways, it's always uh, uh, very entertaining. Big thanks to Christian for taking the time to chat. And again, apologies for the quality of the recording. One day I will have a producer and no doubt they'll just say weekly, Tin and why, why are you doing this? Anyway, um, you can find Christian on Twitter at Christian Walmart, which is... Uh, 
W-O-L-M-A-R, and his website is christianwalmar.co.uk. Uh, Christian's latest book, Railways and the Raj, is on all of those bookshops and sites that you know of, and his new book about driverless cars is going to be out in January too. Uh, Roger Ford, who he recommended, is on Twitter at Captain underscore Deltic, D-E-L-T-I-C, and I have followed him, and it is worth noting that Roger doesn't really tweet very often, and when he does, it's pretty much just about trains, so it might be worth finding his articles instead. Um, there is only one show left before Christmas, and I'm really hoping the guest that I've asked uh, to chat to is able to fit in um, an interview before next week, um, which I will promise I will record properly if that is the case. But I'm going to need new guests for next year, so who shall I seek out for their political wisdom? What subjects shall I find clever buds to enlighten us on? You, the listener, tell me, the Tiernan, and I shall try my goddamn best to make 2018 full of sensible thoughts from excellent people interrupted by terrible questions from me. You can, as always, contact me at Palpolbro on Twitter, the Partly Political Broadcast Group on Facebook, or Partly Political Broadcast at gmail.com. Or, as it's the 25th anniversary of the text message, you can just try and text me. Though I'm not handing out my numbers, so why not keep hitting all possible 40 million mobile phone numbers in the UK until you finally send me an incoherent message full of emojis that I'll send a reply to, but you won't receive it because you'll have been carted off by bailiffs for not paying the world's most extortionate phone bill. Again, email is just easiest. Brexit fallout! Brexit fallout! Brexit fallout! Super quick Brexit fallout this week, as basically the government had said progress had been made towards moving to Brexit trade talks, because yes, 18 months later, and we're not even past stage one yet. Uh, this government's idea of progress is always in the same way falling forwards while running for a bus is progress, in that you've missed the bus, but now you're scrabbling on the pavement, looking stupid, a whole slab or two ahead of where you started. But despite these promises of progress, EU Commission President Jean-Claude Juncker has said today that it's not been possible to reach an agreement. Why? Well, the UK government conceded on how much to pay for the Brexit bill, which they didn't reveal to the public, but we think it's around £50 billion, because if you're going to fuck yourself over, you may as well do it properly. But there is still no solution to the Irish border problem. In a desperate plea to the EU for compromise, the UK government said that they were prepared to accept that Northern Ireland could stay in the customs union and single market, which prompted Scottish First Minister Nicola Sturgeon to ask if, hey, could Scotland do the same? And then it prompted Mayor of London Sadiq Khan to ask if London could as well because they also voted Remain. And you start to wonder if maybe there isn't just a way that we all split into a multitude of different countries with the areas that voted Remain staying in the EU, those that didn't not, and walls around all the places that want borders with free movement between all those that don't. I mean we could be called the United States of the United Kingdom or You Suck for short which would probably sum things up pretty well. Of course, it won't happen though, as the DUP said that they don't want a deal that would threaten the territorial integrity of the UK. Even though, I mean, isn't that what Brexit is? There's still also no news on what progress has been made on EU citizens' rights in the UK, and as with tradition, the pound has plummeted again. But the EU are insisting that this isn't a failure, and Juncker said that he's confident they'll reach sufficient progress by the end of the week. Just how much falling on our face onto hard pavement progress that'll be, we'll have to see. And that is all for this week's Partly Political Broadcast. Thank you once again for listening. No, no, thank you. No, no, I insist. Thank you. And if you listen to this and enjoy it, then please do spread the word and let other people know. Um, do harass The Guardian to pop us in their weekly pod recommendations or anywhere else that does a podcast article. Um, do graffiti the iTunes web link across major historical tourist attractions near you. OK, I mean, maybe don't do that. Unless you live near Woodhenge, which is near Stonehenge, but just the remains of chopped down trees. I mean, why anyone would 
go there leaves me stumped. Ah, sorry, not sorry. Also, um, don't graffiti there. That would be awful. But perhaps instead, maybe just encourage them to branch out a bit. Okay, that is enough. But look, please spread the word. Please review the show and please help it get 100 reviews on iTunes. And if you are able to and can afford to and want to, most importantly, please donate to the Patreon at patreon.com forward slash parpolbro or do a one-off donation and buy me a coffee at ko-fi.com forward slash parpolbro. Huge thanks to Acast for being the host body for this audio parasite and to my brother, the last skeptic, who's currently on tour DJing for Doc Brown if you're going to see that and you should as it's brilliant. Um, this is going to be back next week when I won't be recording it after seeing a music gig first and when I'll have a bit more time to do more analysis rather than just tell you things that happened. Um, also, probably when the Department of Exiting the EU will announce that they've made yet more progress but in reality they'll have just forgotten to undo their seatbelt while leaving the car and slowly half fall out. Bye! This week's show was brought to you by John Dowd's Legal Tweetings. Are you unsure where you stand with a case? Hire John Dowd and he will advise you on the very best tweet to send in order to make legal matters as clear as possible. Just definitely not in your favour. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most. But if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com. <laughs>